All right. Uh, welcome to the show. My name is Andrew Bilodeau alongside... I'm Zeng Dong Wing. Okay, I think we should repeat that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should do like 50. From New Haven, Connecticut, this is Long Story Shorter, where we talk to people about the places they come from. Hi guys, I'm Tat Wei Lee. Just call me Tat. Um, yeah, I'm from Singapore. So it's really nice to be here. So uh, Tat, tell us, before you came to Yale, um, what was your daily routine like? Yeah, just tell us about your home. Sure. Um, so I, I lived in a, like a, sort of like a equivalent of a suburbs, kind of like, like a working class estate back in Singapore. So like... In the morning, I like when I was high school. In the morning, I wake up really early, like at five a.m. Then I'll take a, like a one-hour commute to school, spend like the whole day there. Our classes end at four p.m. Then we have like extracurriculars. I was in the rugby team, so I would train from like six to eight. Then I'll get back home about like nine, ten p.m. And yeah, then that was basically school. Like it, yeah. it, it was really like like hard. Like the whole Asian stereotype of like schools in Asia being really really hard on like academics and stuff is is quite true in Singapore. Like most days, the average hours for school for for people in Singapore are like from six to like six p.m. for high schoolers. Oh wow! Yeah, so so that's 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 what we were like. So for me, like my my daily um, routine in in school in high school was basically a six to eight p.m. kind of day, and yeah, it was really tiring. But the weekends were fun because you know we could do real life and stuff. But yeah. Uh, what about your neighborhood? Tell us about your neighborhood. Yeah, so um, like I said, I come from a working class estate, and the school I went to in high school was like um, a more prestigious one downtown. So uh, in my neighborhood, it was really like quaint. It there, there wasn't like much high skyscrapers and stuff, but because the Singapore is so small, you see, like we are called a city state, but really the the only like modern skyscrapers are within the the central area, which you call like Orchard Road. That's like the main shopping district, the CBD. So where I was, there was tall buildings, but those are like more residential areas. So yeah, my neighborhood was 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 really like quiet really really chill um we have hawker food culture in singapore where like there'll be um, lots of like food stalls located in a central area with lots of seats and uh, like we kind of have that in the u.s as well we have that like food uh, uh, dining areas but in singapore it's way more widespread and it, it's more meant for like the the blue collar worker and stuff so that was my neighborhood um we had a really like nice park nearby and yeah there was a shopping mall i, I always go to as well so it, it was a really like nice accessible place so during that time, did you uh, already think that you would um, go outside the country for studying, or do you think you'd spend the um, most of your working life in Singapore? I guess my my aspirations and what I expected of my future changed a lot um, as I grew up. Because <clears throat> before going to the school I went to, I went to like a a neighborhood school. So in in Singapore, our neighborhood schools are equivalent to like public schools here. Um, but I think that uh, neighborhood schools in Singapore get more funding. I think by virtue of the fact that Singapore is smaller than the U.S., so perhaps like just by division of, of, of resources. So um, neighborhood schools, um, <clears throat> yeah, I was in neighborhood school, and, and I guess at that time, I, my, my, my whole like dream and aspirations were confined to like my immediate like surroundings. I would just like go to a, a, a more prestigious neighborhood school nearby, graduate, maybe like, go to work in Singapore. But then I, I, I was fortunate enough to get into some like good programs, get, um, an, get into a gifted education program. I got into a prestigious school downtown, further downtown. And I think since then, my dream was growing. So in high school, I definitely looked beyond Singapore itself. 
because um, like I said, like Singapore's education system is it's not too different from the Asian stereotype of like hard grades and stuff. Mm-hmm. And as much utility and as, as as much value as there is there, like I didn't really enjoy. I didn't really want to see myself in college like studying so hard every day all the time. I appreciated like the the broad education that like the U.S. offers. So I definitely looked beyond beyond the shores. Um, when I was, by the time I was seventeen or eighteen, looking at Yale specifically it was my dream school. So like yeah, it was really great to get it. Now you say um that you you got into a good high school and like is that is that typical like that you that high schools are. You know, things that you apply to in Singapore is it, tell us more about that. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> the education system and the academic system in Singapore is such that um, you enter like what we call primary school, which is seven to twelve years old. Um, that's like the first, um, yeah, the the first thing you enter before that you have kindergarten. But like, but the first formal like like school setting will be uh, primary school, seven to twelve years old. At the end of primary school, we have something called the uh, primary school leaving examinations at twelve years old, and this is like um, a really stressful exam. It's one of the it's basically the first cutoff which like streams you towards like the next stage of education. So um, this is the one that uh, recently a lot of parents have been really really like um, concerned about because it's it's some argue that it's a bit unfair to like judge a person's entire like like academic future based on an exam when you're when you're twelve years old. But yeah, so that's what we have right now. We have a um, major exam at twelve years old, which will like stream you into different schools. So depending on the score you get for the national exam. Um, it will grant you entry into what we call sec- secondary school, which is generally from um, 13 to 16 years old. But there are different f- uh, formations as well. There's um, um, there are different like like programs. There's like the no- the express program, which is a four-year program, 13 to 16. There's a normal technical program, which is um, which is longer and normal a uh, normal um, academic program, which is a longer one. So it depends on which like score you get and what stream you're put in. So for me, I was in the express stream. Or rather, um, I was in a special program called like the integrated program, which is a six-year program. So normally, if you're in an express stream from 13 to 16, you would go through um, secondary school. At the end of 16, you take another national examinations called the... Um, it's actually, I think, um, partnered with the UK. It's mm-hmm. um, the, the Cambridge, Cambridge O-level examinations. And after that, you go into junior college, which is the pre-university, right before you go to university. So the, the school I was in, we had a special program where we did a six-year program. So we didn't do the national examination at 16. We did a six-year program. We went, um, I, I, I did an international baccalaureate at 18 years old. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, how, how this works in Singapore is that because we're so, um, we're so small in a sense, it's very easy to, to apply to a good school from the other end of the island, which I think it's much different here in the U.S. because like you may be in a, in a community where like, um, you want to go to a really, really good school, but it's far away, so like you know, you have limited options. But in Singapore, like basically the whole country is is, is a viable option for you. So yeah, um, application to high school works based on this this cutoffs at different stages of your academic life. Mm. So under this system, uh, you obviously were able to uh, get into your dream school and do what you wanted mostly. But um, what would you say of of how this system works for other people, like maybe you have some friends who, for whom it was really hard for them under this system, and would you do anything to change it? Yeah, so I think one great thing about Singapore, which to an extent it might work against the principle as well, is that Singapore is very, very meritocratic. It works on this really, really um, big emphasis on what you produce, and that doesn't it doesn't really look at like like your background and stuff. As long as you produce good work, you have good. Um, got academic uh, standings you do well in the country and that's why it's very easy or it's easier for someone who 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 is really really intelligent and really like who does really well in school from anywhere in the country from like uh, um uh 
who whose family is low income and stuff like that to get into good school because the the system is such that it enables people like that to get into good schools because it, it looks so much on hard grades. But at the same time, it it doesn't really um, account for systemic like um, disadvantages that that those from low income families have. So for me, I was very lucky to benefit from it. But I have friends who 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 are really really intelligent and stuff, but the, their families couldn't send them to to enrichment classes and stuff. Or like I didn't go to it myself, but I I know many of my peers in in the prestigious school I went to have tons of tuition and, and they go to like um, like music classes, dance classes, all that, all, all this enrichment, which um, those from lower income families do not ha- have the resources to send their kids to. So <clears throat> I, th- I think the one thing good about our education system is that if you are able to produce good grades, you are kind of guaranteed a sort of a stable like, like um, academic career path. But it kind of... Um, discriminates against those whose whose background isn't that yeah that 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 resourceful as well and we've talked before about how um you talked to me about singapore as some uh, a very a place very much based in meritocracy and a place yeah. very much based in in data and statistics mm-hmm. um you talk about another aspect um outside of education maybe that's that's very data driven uh on how singapore works right so um and, and this is one thing that was was a big um shocker and a great interest for me when I came to the US as well like our, our politics and how we talk about like national issues is very different like in, in the US we have this like with, with with Donald Trump being president and stuff there's a lot of use of polemics a lot of use of like you know like 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 character politics and stuff like that and, and Singapore is very different so with this emphasis on, on statistics data and, and I would say like it's, it's very technocratic in a sense. So when, when, when the government pushes policies, pushes issues, they look at, at hard, hard data. So like this, 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 and hap- this, this, this thing happened, and um, why do we need this policy, stuff like that. So it's very systematic. It, it, it's very efficient in a way, in a very like Asian sense, that, that it, it gets the point across. It's, it's, it's efficient, it's, not, uh, it's incorrupt, and it doesn't give this veneer of like um, bias in a sense. It's very by the book. So Can I, you I think see that reflected mm, in like your daily life, just living here in the U.S. versus when you used to be in Singapore. Like, how would you see that like on the street or? Yeah. So I think being being in a university like Yale with so many, so many people having so much passions and so much like concerns about the world. One thing that's very different from I think back home is that um, the ability and the the accessibility of people to campaign for like causes they want to, even to a point that sometimes it disrupts like daily life at campus but um, the idea here is that this is necessary to further a certain certain objective but back home in Singapore <clears throat> it's it's different like not even in a legal sense like beyond a legal sense like in a cultural sense people don't do that because there's a sense in which um, I guess to an extent it's compliance as well that these things happen because of reasons and let's not talk about those reasons or, or just because of um, this idea that it was kind of inculcated in a culture by the ruling government as well, that everything is done by statistics, by hard arguments. It's not done by like going on the streets and like shouting stuff like that. So that's a very different idea of like how to campaign for your causes. In Singapore, we definitely do have 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 stuff like that, but it's it's not in the way that happens in the U.S. through protests and stuff. It's more through like um, arguments and and more through um, yeah. It, it's not as like democratized in the way you can campaign for causes. Yeah. So we're talking about the, the um, Singapore as a as a place as a government as a, an, an institution very yeah. broadly. Um, 
what uh, and I think we've touched a bit upon your opinions on it but like um, what is your like um, what how do you <laughs> want to be involved if you do it all um, to go back um, after graduation um, what are your plans uh, yeah. do you plan to go back and, and why and what do you want to do there definitely um, so I'm, I'm at Yale now on a uh, government scholarship so I the government's paying for my tuition here. I'll be going back after graduation so for six years um, in a civil service, more specifically in a foreign service. So that's uh, currently where my career is taking me. So I'll definitely look to go back. I'm definitely looking to, to do something for, for the community back home because I think personally for me as a personal story, coming from a um, working class background, going to a, pre a prestigious school with many of my peers being from different backgrounds really opened my eyes to this um, tension in society in Singapore. Like, in Singapore, there's this really big um, perceived divide between those who have made it, those who are um, middle to high, high, high income, and those who, who are left as a lower middle income or low income families. And there's this like um, lots of tension through how they perceive policies, how they perceive what the government's actions are. And as someone who has the, the, the benefit to like trap both worlds in a sense, because my, my neighborhood, my immediate family, my extended family are like from this working class background where I intellectually developed was in a background where people are from different, like, more elite with air quotes fam uh, backgrounds. And, and, and yeah, I've, I've seen different perspectives. And, and I realized that a lot of these tensions are, are through um, misunderstandings because, like, it's a lot about, like, talking past each other and not being able to understand certain stuff. So that's where I, I, I realized that I want to go back to, like, make a difference through, through these areas to, like, reconcile these differences. I wouldn't go so far as to say it as I want to go back to, to, to reform society or anything like that. I'm just, I just want to go back to do my part. But I think for me, I found my, my calling for lack of a better cliche word to, uh, th through that experience, yeah. So, so just to kind of like clarify what you're saying, like, so you feel like you offer a perspective uh, that isn't prevalent enough? Is that something that you're kind of saying? Yeah. So we talked a little, a little bit about our, our education system and how it's systemically kind of like prejudiced against those who are from a different like uh, lower income background. And I think for me, I had the massive privilege of, of being offered these opportunities. And I think it, it, in a sense, a sense of duty as well, that after I've, I've benefited from this, I need to somehow, you know, like affect change in some way. And yeah, I don't think many people have had the opportunity to come from the background that I came from, see like the world that I came from, uh, and hear like the, the stuff that's discussed from, from the background I came from and, and see it from a different perspective through, 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 that, through the place I study and stuff. So, yeah. Any particular reason why the Foreign Service? Because I know uh, it's the relative importance of the Foreign Service in Singapore is probably very different from where it is here. And um, the Foreign Service, you might not be able to work on education as much as you talk about. Yeah. So the reason for the Foreign Service is because I wanted to like, kind of like explore the world to, to see like different cultures and stuff like that. Because I've always believed that even in terms of my, my choices for education, that I'm not a kind of person to like go super in depth immediately into one field. So the reason I came to the US is because I wanted to like synthesize different like fields of thought, fields of learning. So in the same way, the reason I want to join foreign services is to just get exposed to different like countries and how they deal with things, how they think about things. Like the way the, the US, the Middle East, how China thinks about economy, thinks about issues of like of nationalism is vastly different. And I think through that, I can incorporate this, this learnings and bring it back to Singapore somehow. 
So so that's why the Foreign Service. Also because like I've I've just general passion and general interest in international relations and politics. Um yeah. That's it. I, I wouldn't say that I, I intend to stay in the foreign service for my whole career and stuff like that, but that's where I want to start. Yeah. Mm. What are some things like you mentioned that um, you know uh, different uh, places think about problems differently? And it, it sounds like Singapore has a very distinct mm. way. Um, it just just as a, somebody who's who's coming from a place that's so different than than the U.S. Um, what what do you what is your general perception about how how the U.S. thinks about problems? And 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 you've touched a little bit upon how that's different in Singapore, but a little I, I just wanted was wondering if you can go in a little more in depth into that. Yeah. So like one of the first things when I talk to people like in the U.S., I introduce myself like I say I'm from Singapore. The first thing they ask me is that, is that a country where chewing gum is banned? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you got it right. So, um, the the story behind the chewing gum thing is that back in the past, like, um, people used to eat chewing gum and just like spit it all over the place till to the point that it was like dirty and and you know like when chewing gum is left on the ground for a long time, it turns black and you can't remove it stuff like that. So the government's res- response was to like say. Basically, if, if this doesn't stop, we won't sell it anymore. And they stopped selling it. <laughs> so chewing gum was banned because like, it was tough to control its, its, um, the, the, the after effects. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty symbolic like, like picture of, of, of how Singapore deals with its problems in a sense. Like, to argue whether it's, it is a good or bad thing is a normative thing. But like, to, that's basically how the Singaporean mentality is. And sometimes it's effective. You know, like, looking at problem solutions, taking a very hard stance towards it. In the US, it's more about like... Um, always going back to this idea of like you know the constitution the idea of democracy the, the idea of liberty that these ideals that form the bedrock of, of America in Singapore I think we see democracy more as a tool to, to achieve an end rather than an end in itself and for Singapore the end is basically the betterment of the people the, the well-being of the people which is why in Singapore this is really hard focus on economic progress as this as this um sort of this this uh this method and this way f- for people to to be happier. And I think in the US is different. There's a lot of um I wouldn't say I'm well versed enough to really comment on that, but I think it's just a very different perception of of what democracy is and what the government role in that is. So in Singapore there's a greater sense of paternalism where the the government um go- goes through like ideas about stuff and then they will tell the people like this is the policies. Of course they open up avenues for the people to like feedback and stuff but generally like policies uh, given by the government is 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 put forth in a way that is different in the u.s so it, it's a more paternalistic kind of kind of uh, country and, and and a method of solving problems uh let's say you're in the foreign service now and you're talking to people from other places and you want them to experience the the kind of experience that you had in your past in singapore like what kind of stories would you tell them okay so this is kind of related to like a, 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 a political angle as well. So recently, Sing- Singaporeans have become more politically conscious. And with that comes this greater awareness of like c- citizen journalism, stuff like that, the, the, the one to get out and, and say stuff. But sometimes it becomes a bit disruptive as well. So there's this um, online platform in Singapore called Stomp, which is specifically a citizen journalism site where you like post pictures of stuff and any comment on it and articles of stuff like that. And in Singapore, there's this... Uh, we have our subway system called the MRT system, and there's this big culture of like, of you know offering seats to elderly, offering seats to those in need. Mm-hmm. But um, so the, the the rise of citizen journalism kind of like made this re- a really like unpleasant experience to be on a train because like for me 
like when I'm on a train, I see a seat open. I'm not gonna take it because I don't want to risk. Because I'm a I'm a young I'm a young guy. Mm-hmm. If I sit there and I fall asleep, <laughs> and someone who's elderly walk by and and someone takes a photo of that, there'll be a huge thing. And this happens a lot in Singapore. And, and it's such a small issue, but it's 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 really aggravating sometimes because the way that people like channel their passion in a different way. So like there are lots of pictures of like one one person in conscription in army because we have that in Singapore. So he's fully clothed in in in, in his um army uniform, standing. Standing by, uh, standing in the train. There's a whole row of empty seats, but he doesn't want to sit down because he doesn't want to get caught on on storm and and, and such a yeah so weird, weird situation. In, in the situation you talked about, it sounds to me like you should just not fall asleep. Oh yeah, no. There was once I was so tired. Um, I was standing in the train. I was falling asleep while standing, oh. and then this elderly elderly person was sitting on the seat, and he f- saw me fall asleep, and he stood up and said, like like boy, do you want to sit down? And I'm like, oh no no no, I'm fine I'm fine. And, and it was it was so embarrassing because like you know. Like a, a elderly person offering a young guy a seat, but yeah, th- that's the kind of thing where where Singapore channel ha- has a lot of passion for this kind of stuff, and it just channels it in different ways. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, also, then just don't fall asleep while standing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, actually, uh, so like you said, s- uh, citizen journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's is that opposed to like, like what do you mean by that? Yeah, so. I think it's also due due to the way our like media works in Singapore. It's um, the biggest media in Singapore is the state media, but I think the connotation of state media has a really like negative connotation from like the from like the Cold War mm-hmm. and stuff. It, it's not really like propaganda per se, but it is under the arm of the government, so the government does have final say. But there are many instances of the the papers speaking against the government. But yeah, so the idea of citizen citizen journalism is a, is a sense of this democratization of of views because. Um, in Singapore, there's this really hard policy of, of, or rather, it's really hard to come up with like uh, your own paper. So there, there are really limited number of like um, article, uh, magazines, newspapers, and stuff like that. Because um, these are all controlled by the government. So the opportunities for the average person to get their 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 views out is, is, was hard in the past. But with the rise of like the internet now, there are many sites where like um, lots of people voice their, their opinions and stuff. So um, citizen journalism through Stomp is one way, but that's not really the most political um, website. There are other websites where people post stuff and, and, and comment on stuff. So yeah, that's the rise of the the, the, the new politically aware um, youth. So do you feel like the this like rise of citizen journalism, like the democratiz- like the democratization of media, mm-hmm. which I think is occurring with the internet like throughout yeah. the world, uh, it, in Singapore specifically, do you think that's an increased criticism of the government, or do you think that's like just increased discussion? Yeah, so there's definitely an increase in the quantity of stuff being said because now you're you're more able to say it, and lots of people go on on internet and you know with this with social media, there's a rise of like uh, bubbles as well. And um, yeah, I think it is a good thing that it's become more accessible so that people can say and be willing to say stuff as well. But back to your back to your question, I I don't think it's necessarily a good thing as well because the rise in criticism sometimes is unfounded, and when you're in a social media you don't have the regulation or you don't have the, the sense of responsibility to like be sure of what you say you know like for example if you were holding a rally or something you, you'll be thinking through everything you say you'll research stuff but when you're online you post a comment like you just write the most populist thing people think people will like it you feel good you just continue doing that and uh, for me like for my own personal like kind of uh, personal growth stuff like that I, I always go through like the sites that are really anti-government just to see what they're thinking and a lot of times you can see like a lot of blatant like flaws in logic 
And the thing is that no one points them out in like the comment section and stuff because they're all just building like yeah. So what worries me is that with the democratization of the media of 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 journalism, that there's building up to be like a greater divide, ironically, between those who have made it and those who are perceived to be oppressed by the current system. Even though like there are a lot of like logical flaws with the those who are against the government as well as their logical flaws with those who are for the government, but. I'm afraid that there will be not enough opportunities to like you know, converse with each other, which I think is a problem all over the world in the U.S. as well, with with you know the the, the rise of of the cons- of of the the yeah Donald Trump and and the reason why you came out something like that. So I think yeah, it's it's a worrying thing. So I know you're very active on Facebook with your political <laughs> opinions. Do you think that's more like the echo chamber that you talked about earlier, or um, like tell us why you you feel the need to yeah. So I guess it's more it's it's on two fronts like a personal thing and a and a community thing, community thing as well. I think on a personal front, the reason why I want to post this on like social media where it can be seen by people rather than like in my own journal or something is that I want to be accountable for what I say, so that the opinions that I put up would necessarily like would necessitate me to to make sure that what I say is is fair or what I say is is not like bigotry or isn't just uninformed. So through through that's why I'm putting it online because it's it's something that someone who read and will read and if they disagree with it they'll comment on it, and if something I write is completely irresponsible then I'll be getting like like flack from 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 friends and stuff. So I think that's a personal thing as well to make myself accountable. Um, in terms of the community aspect, I think. For I think it's a responsibility for for those who, who, I wouldn't say it's moral obligation, but I think personally like, I see it as a responsibility responsibility for myself to like, um share stuff that I find like insightful and, st- and try to like reconcile the two the two ends of the spectrum like for, for those who are unable to understand the perspective of, of the lower income or a sp- perspective of those who are in the, the the higher income areas so like the stuff I put up I don't necess- I don't always go against or agree with the status quo but I, I put up what I think is is, is my perspective and, and how it should work together and I think it's, it's very important especially with the youth today with so much like desire for change to channel them in the right way and to do, and to do, to do that is to to like sharpen each other's uh, like ideas and words and, and not just envelop oneself in the echo chamber so putting your stuff up online like like discussing things online will help you be aware of the, the views others have i think yeah and and to what extent is this like like when you're putting things on social media or when you're talking about um issues um it, it, I understand that you you've talked about how Singapore is very technocratic, very mm. statistics based. To what extent do you think this um, democratization of the media and and your personal, I guess, journey <laughs> with with social media, yeah. um, are you are you trying to sort of, you know, uh, add add color to this? You know, like the, the the mindset of looking at just statistics. Are you trying to like um, expose things to people that um, people might not? think about when they're just looking at uh if the government puts out a list of statistics or something like that and and um like to what extent do you think the people in singapore are um like do they not want to see that those shades of of difference or do are they just not exposed to them yeah i I think that's a great question um so i think back home there's a there's still residual sense of like political apathy a lot of people are like they would defer to the government thinking that the government is doing good. And to be honest, like from my perspective, I think the government is doing more good than they are doing bad because like 
if if you were to come to Singapore one day, or if you were, if you were to go online and go to like a anti-government website, you would think that Singapore is a horrible place to live in. But honestly, it it's really a good place. It's safe. It's it, it's fair. The judicial system is fair, and education system is as much as is as it has its flaws, it's still good and efficient. So, I think there's this sense of like political apathy in the especially those who are like older right now to like just defer to the government and and you know what what they say is best because these are the most brilliant minds in Singapore. They've thought through it, stuff like that. And I'm not sure this assumption is always true, because as much as, um, as brilliant as a person can be, the threat of groupthink and the threat of thinking as a collective all the time is, is is always, always always there. Especially in a country like Singapore, where we've been ruled by the same party ever since independence in 1959. Uh, that's like self-government, but independence 1965. So, yeah, we've been ruled by this party for for, for over 50 years, and and the fact that this this party has been doing good. It's not a corrupt party. It's, it's been it, it brought Singapore from a third world to a first world nation, and this is why I think a lot of Singaporeans are are willing to like you know let them, let the government dictate ash- actions. But I think this is where we can learn from like countries in the West, like US, where like um, there's a lot of input from the people who like put their ideas forth and en- engage in the issues, which I think those who who agree with like the status quo don't do enough to like think of why do we do this or why is this okay? Because once you think of those issues, then you'll find out like okay, so this are the stuff that we're giving up. Or they will start to question assumptions like, um, like is, is economic progress really the only way for people to be happy? Should we like take a step back? Should we increase social welfare? Stuff like that. But those who agree with like the, the status quo don't really uh, interrogate those issues enough, which I think is, is a, a, a problem in, in Singapore, especially when you move into an age where populism, into an age where um, there's, there's this rise in, 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 in the, 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 stat- the anti-status quo movement. So we need we need these people to like start, start talking about these issues to find reasons to justify why we do actions rather than saying that okay let's just use this this reason because we've used this for the past few years but that's not always going to be like economic progress can't be the only way to achieve happiness for a nation right so on the other end of the spectrum those who are against the status quo I think they also um, fail to really look at it from the ruling party's perspective as well. Because there's a lot of time, a lot of times where they where they argue that oh no, um, these policies are bad because they oppress us and like um, th- those who who institute this policy do do it for their own like nefarious reasons and that's not always fair. So there's this need for 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 people to start like honestly asking themselves like why would someone like giving the benefit of the doubt to the person who implemented a policy? Why would a good benign person choose to do this? And and I think that's something that's happening in Singapore definitely like. Singapore is not a fractured state yet. We're still a, a very like um, ordered society. But I think it's a it's a move that we have to make cautiously, so that we don't end up with two like like fractured spectrums. And like um, you t- you said a little bit about like how um, you think uh, political discourse and the way we you, uh, Singapore uh, has national conversations um, can learn a little bit. You said from 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 the West, mm-hmm. uh, which I I I, I don't think it would be too far to venture to say has a bit more chaotic <laughs> yes. political a little bit not too much <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so so what really is the perception of of people in Singapore of of how these rambunctious political conversations kind of unfold um, perceptions of of um, populist movements not only in in mm. the rise of, of Donald Trump but also um, you know right-wing movements that have been going on in, in Eastern and Central Europe um, the Brexit movement in, in, in the UK, um, this sort of rise of, of anti-government um, 
and, and to a certain extent, um, I, I would say anti-globalization uh, uh, movements in the West, uh, it, creating a very chaotic political discourse. Um, is, is that something that's thought about or discussed or like, um, I guess, warned against or something in, in Singapore? Yeah, and if I could add, like, has anything like this sort appeared in Singapore at all? Okay, sure. So I, I once had like a, a conversation, a Q&A session effectively with one of the, the, the leaders, um, uh, not a political leader, but a leader of one of like the, the huge industries in Singapore. And I, I asked him, do you think Singapore is too technocratic a state? Like, do you think, like, if you take Singapore to be one end of the spectrum, and let's say the US, and at, at the point of time, I think uh, Donald Trump just came into office. So I said that the US is not the greatest example, but like between te technocracy and where the US is now, there's some middle ground to go. And his answer was really, really interesting and I think quite symbolic of, of the psyche of, of the current like generation of leaders. He said that between merely talking or walking the walk, I'll choose to walk the walk. And I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty deep, deep thing, you know, like we want to do, we don't want to, we don't just want to talk. But at the same time, I don't think I think that's a I think that's a false dichotomy. Like, there's definitely a space to like talk about issues and not just be technocratic and do it. But that's currently like the the, the idea of, of the governance right now. So the perception of uh, Singapore has of the West is that they 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 harm themselves by by focusing too much on on the, the like petty politicking, you know. I think when I was talking to some of my uh, my peers or some of of, of uh, my teachers back home as well, like the bipartisan no not bi not bipartisan is the wrong word but um like the 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 Republican and Democratic like 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 tensions in the U.S. is really disruptive because it's really difficult to have uh, sustained policy making because like there could be a, a Republican president for four years and a Democratic president comes in and change the whole system, so this is the main argument for which like uh, the Singapore government argues against having a multi-party kind of parliament because and, and honestly I think I agree with them more than I disagree with them because to an extent having a single party state for the past 50 years has brought Singapore back to, uh, to where it is now because if, if, if there wasn't a single party state if there was like even if there was two parties vying for um, elections all the time when the second when, a, when the incumbents lose the seat the, the the party that comes in comes in for reasons that go against incumbents and therefore they have to restructure the system because that's their political promise and so i think that's disruptive in itself so i think with 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 issues like brexit with issues like trump's uh, coming to office these are all reasons that singapore we use to, to strengthen the idea that you know that democracy doesn't have, doesn't have to happen the way that the west thinks it does like democracy is about you know about fairness about equality I don't think Asian societies or I guess Singapore sees democracy in the same way US would see democracy. So I think they, they would say that this idea of, of having um, multiple parties would merely make ourselves more vulnerable to populism and we, we need to clamp down on that. And on the flip side, the government has made steps to say that we acknowledge the issue of groupthink and so we are inviting more like diverse people into our party ranks we are en enabling more avenues for the people to talk to us to increase like the, the the range of discussion the range of ideas so that we don't you know entrench ourselves in group thing which i think is a positive step but at the same time i think um not only does the system have to change the culture has to change as well and the culture in the sense of people being willing to speak up and yeah and onto the the issue of whether this has happened in Singapore before um there have been instances in which like political 
um, actors and uh, just people campaigning for, for, for causes have spoken up in ways that are, uh, I would say, unfair, unjustified. And, and, these, and these people were, were like sued, were, were put into jail, stuff like that. And this is a very um, sensitive issue because there are many ways to interpret this. People will think that, oh, therefore the government is co- being completely oppressive. They don't want to hear any, like, um, any views against, against the status quo and then they stop talking. But I don't think we should perceive it this way. I think we should like look at them and see like what exactly was wrong about what they said. Because in many instances in which people were like punished and stuff, I may not agree with the extent to which they were punished. But you have to see that there were reasons that they were punished. Like the reasons they say, uh, the reasons for for thinking that what they say is a threat to society, and that's where we should like look at it. So um, I think right now Singapore is in a position where it's really really protected against the possibility of populism even though there's always a possibility everywhere but I think there's there's definitely more space for it to like open up and work on it so just just to switch gears a little bit um, I wanted to ask you about um, rugby and about sure. sports in Singapore yeah. uh, is rugby like the number one sport, or is it is it something else? So rugby isn't really a a big thing in Singapore. I think I think a uh, football, or rather soccer, <laughs> soccer, <laughs> uh, soccer in Singapore. I think is the biggest sport. Uh, rugby isn't that big, but I think um, in the school I was, we had a really really big rugby culture, and we had a big rivalry with a couple other schools. So within these few schools, rugby was a very huge thing, and yeah, it it, it was it was great fun. Um, the sports culture in Singapore, I say, is, is still growing. Like, it's not that big yet. Um, I think a lot of people are afraid to go into sports because they think it's, like, it's it's sacrificing stability because they're, they're not going the traditional path of, like, you know, be, just studying well, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a, be an engineer. So, yeah, I mean, but, but I think perception is changing. And, and culturally and, and systemically, like, people are more willing to, to try this, like, um, non-traditional paths. So what what's the thing to do in your free time, with friends? With friends, um, back home, I don't know. We just, I mean, go to the movie like like stuff like in the US. I think we just go to the movies, like go to coffee shops and chat. Um, yeah, personally, like I I like to like write poetry, stuff like that. So, yeah. I don't know if you saw this. Is like a little off topic, but um, I don't know if you saw the uh, there's an article about a parent in like I think it was like Northern California or something that posted about um, boba shops in the town oh and they said um they said that boba shops were hurting their kids SAT scores because they hung mm. out there too much <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I don't know that just yeah, yeah. Me think of that I, um, I guess it's a thing <laughs> but um I, so I'm pretty sure some boba places lace it with something that would also <laughs> hurt your scores <laughs> so um so, uh, what? Uh, how how old were you when you started playing? How old were you when you started playing rugby? I, I was thirteen. I just um, came straight out of, uh, yeah, from part, uh, my my first month um, in secondary school. I told my, I was a chubby kid, so I told myself that I want to start, you know, doing sport. And the only sport that accepted chubby kids was like rugby. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I it up. So you were full contact rugby at thirteen years old. Yeah, yeah. So um, I took a long while to get into the whole mental state because. Um, I was a really shy kid. I, I I didn't really like sports in general, so I wasn't really aggressive. It took me almost like two or three years to really be 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 like there 
to be willing to hit people, be willing to you know like find joy in and hurting people on the field. Yeah, but yeah. just to have the like self reflection to think I really want to do this and put myself out there and mm. and end up succeeding. I think that's enough, mm. right? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's definitely like. I think in Singapore, as much as I've talked about how like it's very academic, it's a very Asian system and stuff like that, there are definitely um, movements now to encourage like not just studying in school. So like where I was, um, Anglo Chinese school, like there was a big emphasis on like outside, um, outside uh, academic stuff. Like there was a big emphasis on sports, big emphasis on performing uh, arts and stuff like that. And I think I benefited a lot from it. That like we had a big sports culture back in back in school specifically. So um, yeah, it was great. That's really interesting. It's like there's like all these uh, like big scandals or like questions about uh, mm. like teenagers playing like American football, yeah, and like with like even with like helmets and pads, but like rugby, <laughs> oh <is> yeah, like <laughs> hardcore. And <laughs> yeah, you were yeah. at thirteen, yeah, uh, like within the first thing, first month of of me joining, a friend of a teammate of mine broke his collarbone and stuff like that. And I, my mom was so scared; she wanted me to pull out. I'm like, no, no, I can do this. Let me stay here. And every, every every year since thirteen, like up till now, I, I skyped my mom two weeks ago. She still told me like stop playing rugby because <laughs> like <laughs> it's too dangerous and stuff. I'm like mom, I'm I'm already twenty. It's been like so seven years, so like gotten more intense go. since then. Um, definitely, I think um, in terms of rugby, like back home in Singapore, like we are, I think because I've played with my friends in, in Singapore for like six years, so there's there's huge chemistry. We're all like we kind of know the game. Here in, at Yale, everyone's like. People are new because you know rugby isn't a big thing here. Football is a big contact sport. People are new, but they they have so much passion and like they're so big, and and <laughs> yeah. So like it's definitely a different like ball game altogether. Like playing here is it's I guess I'm more prone to injury now. I, I think I've got injured more times than I did the entire six years I've been in in rugby back home just oh, within no. the past year itself. So yeah. So, Tot, what is Singlish? Right. So, um, so Singlish is, is like a colloquial sort of like language. I don't know what the technical term is, but it's basically Singlish mixed with a lot of like local languages and stuff. So, Singapore is a multicultural society. Um, we have like seventy percent Chinese, twenty um, percent Malay, ten percent Indians, and, and and others. So, so there's there's many um, languages that are used in everyday life. So, Chinese, uh, Mandarin rather, Malay, uh, Tamil. These are just some of the like the the languages that are used in conjunction with English, and so Singlish is this like uh, melting pot of these languages coming to one with English as the base. But like, if you were good, if you were to go to Singapore right now, like you will be able to detect that someone is speaking to you in English, but intonations will be very different. The, the 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 colloquial languages will be very different, and and it's very interesting to see how like the development of Singlish kind of like mirrors the development of the state of the nation in general, because. Um, yeah, back uh, back when we were independent, you know, um, the government chose to to make English the official language. So he imposed like um, English English learning in, in every school. So like um, people start learning English and stuff like that. And for those in lower income families, because um, they don't perhaps didn't have the resources to go to English educated schools, they go to Chinese educated schools. Their Singlish is very different. Uh, that the the everyday language is very different from those who who do. So like Singlish in a sense, in a good or bad way sort of like unifies and divides people as well. So like, if you go to a, a Singaporean right now and ask them like, what is the most distinctive thing about Singapore? They'll tell you Singlish. But Singlish has a wide spectrum as well. And there are people who, who on one hand, who are more affluent, who may not have the same like accent as those who are, who are, who are less affluent and stuff like that. So, so 
yeah, so that that's how Singular started. Before we go, if you can uh, give us some examples of things that would be said in Singlish and like what they mean and things like that. Yeah. So other than the intonation in Singlish, which is uh, heavily influenced by the different like other languages in Singapore, I think one of the most dis- distinctive things is that we punctuate our sentences with various words, which means very different things. So like, there's a word "la," which is like exclamation. So, uh, for example, if someone asks you like, um, "Do you score like an A in your essay?" Here you would say like, "No." But in Singapore, you'd be like, no la, like, or like, um, come with me la. Like, or like, like it's, it's, it's a, like an exclamation point. Yeah. And then you can change the, the la to different words. So like if you change it to law, there's an entire different sentiment to it. So if you ask the same question, like, do you get an A on your, on your essay? Do you get an A on your test? And someone goes like, no law. And there's this sense of like, um, like, like desire, like, like law is like, ah, I wish I had it. As opposed to la, which is like, no, I didn't. Or you can change it to like, le, like, no le. And that gives a sentiment of like, I expected to get it, but I didn't. Like, uh, for some reason, I don't have it. Like, yeah, so the, 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 the different words that you punctuate a sentence like really modifies it. So um, yeah, it, it's really interesting to see like, like, like in, Singap- in, in Singlish, there's so much meaning that can be packed into different words. Cause like the, the use of intonation, the use of different like modifying uh, punctuations, like just create, like create a different meaning altogether. Like in, um, I think one of the funniest like memes I've seen and like the Singapore memes is that they will use like a long English sentence and then like below that there'll be like a four words English word uh, sentence because like <laughs> there's so much meaning like meh law and stuff like that yeah so it, it's it's yeah it's really interesting well uh, thank you Todd this was great it's a great conversation um, thank you for being our first guest thank you very much for having me this is Where my dreams wait for me Where that river always flows This is home, surely As my senses tell me This is where I won't be alone Long Story Shorter is a production of Yaley's in a Pot Yale's undergraduate podcast organization. Hosting and editing today by Andrew Bilodeau and myself, Zengdong Wang. The intro music was composed by Lawrence Chapman for the award-winning game 80 Days by Inkle Studios. Special thanks to Morse College for letting us use the Crescent Underground Recording Studio and to Sophia Campo Amor for teaching us how. Special thanks also to our resident Wall Street sellout, Hassan Tukhtamashev, who responded to our starting the podcast in this way. If this doesn't stop, we won't sell it anymore.